for September 7th, 2009. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 62. Necessary, but not sufficient. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Tony Culver City, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, uh, here in my now very nice-looking apartment in, uh, in Los Angeles, which is, you know, novel, except it introduces a lot of latency and noise into the podcast that wasn't there before. So hopefully we will have a better time this week. And I, we have a, because uh, we have a huge panel, I, I have an absolutely enormous panel. And uh, since in honor of Labor Day, this we're releasing this on Labor Day, a holiday in the U.S. where we celebrate labor by not laboring. And so the question uh, for the panel tonight is, what is your favorite depiction of manual labor in some sort of pop culture? Uh, though there are, there are many... Uh, Guests on tonight who are not regular guests on the podcast. Fortunately, all's right with the world, and Peter Fenzel is still first in alphabetical order. Pete, what is your favorite depiction of manual labor? You know, I could answer this question real serious-like and actually pick something that deserves it, but I'm going to go with my gut and say the crazy construction site chase scene in Baby's Day Out from 1994, where Joe Mantegna chases a baby through a construction site and around a park and get hits in the nuts a whole bunch of times. (laughs) Joe Mantegna is one of the best actors of his generation in his weight class, and to watch a man like that get hit in the nuts as many times as Joe Mantegna gets hit in the nuts in Baby's Day Out, it's a gift, people. Don't look it in the mouth. Be grateful for the blessings you have in life, including the construction site scene in Baby's Day Out. Um, it will be Fenzel's Day Out on Labor Day, which I'm excited about. <laughs> yes. So there you go. That's my answer. That's the truth. That's my, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Or whatever. That's the truth. Lily Tomlin reference. I'm spitting. <laughs> go on, yeah, no, lots I'm of sorry, people. The, go to the, the next spit. guy. Go to the I, next guy. Oh, God, I think I, I think I felt it. Mr. Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. Favorite depiction of manual labor. All right, this one's pretty straightforward. It's um, a line from uh, Bruce Springsteen's The River, and it goes like this. I got a job working construction at the Johnstown Company, something like that. The following line is, but lately there ain't been much work on account of the economy. And the great thing about this depiction of uh, manual labor is that it works, and, and, and in relation to the economy, is that it, uh, has, it works on essentially two levels in different times. If the economy is bad, as it is now, then, oh, that's sad, and oh, you know, Springsteen has, you know, written something timeless that, you know, we can always come back to. But when times are good, like they were four years ago, it's like, oh, listen to, listen to that quaint, you know, outdated depiction of the shitty economy back in the 1980s. Ha. Ha. Springsteen good. Indeed. Springsteen good. That's why he's la- la- Labor the good. Springsteen good. <laughs> I just want to distill things down here to the basic elements. John Parrish is with us from Lambridge, Massachusetts. No, sorry, what I can't. Up, what up, what up. I can't keep from making that joke. I did it on no, the last no, no. episode, don't, and I did. Don't don't stop now, please. Are you My in Lambridge favorite, or are you in Somerville? Yes, I'm in I'm in Lambridge, Massachusetts. My favorite pop culture depiction of manual labor uh, is still, even if it's not one of his his best, uh, Billy Joel's Allentown 
simply because like the river, you know, depicts, you know, the story of a, of a working class schlub, you know, who's out, who's out on his luck currently looking for a job in downtown PA. Uh, but also because the song itself feels very much like manual labor with the very heavy beats and the, you know, the clinking of hammers and the metal on metal sound that, uh, that makes the rhythm section. Hot metal so on it, metal action. Yes, which is which is not at all a metal song. Billy Joel is the farthest thing from metal that you can possibly get, unless you get to like I don't know Peter Cetera or someone like that. Yanni. No, Yanni's pretty metal. Peter <laughs> Cetera is even less metal than Yanni. <laughs> or Kenny G. Uh, moving on, Mr. Ryan she or I should say Professor Ryan Sheely. Uh, I, I guess technically it's instructor, uh, uh, pending the successful completion of the requirements for the PhD. But sure, you can call me professor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, manual labor. I mean, that's is that what you do there in the academy? <laughs> manual labor? Oh is yeah, it- <laughs> it's it's really. I mean, it's just the, the books get really heavy sometimes. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I think that what came to mind when this topic was was suggested was the uh, the Simpsons uh, when uh, I think Homer is uh, is homophobic and takes Bart to a, a steel mill and uh, trying to show him manly men, and it's a uh, and unbeknownst to him is a uh, steel mill that uh, moonlights as a gay disco um and i think it includes the uh the lines that you know hot stuff coming through and uh, <laughs> you know, and the, uh yeah. there's a spark in your hair get it out get it out and so i don't know that's you know being a sheltered ivory tower academic that's what i uh envision uh work sites you are uh, so pretentious uh, no, I really am. Uh, I'm not pretending to anything. You are exactly. As a- I haven't been. I haven't been on one for a while. But I, I hear. I hear that you're quite pretentious, Matt. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm pretending to all kinds of things, uh, like actually having a clue about what's going on most of the time. Hey, uh, I, I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't interrupt right in the middle of the the going around the horn like this, but. Um, You've been round the horn yourself recently. The horn, the horn of Africa, you mean? Yes. <laughs> no, I actually didn't go around the horn because I would have gotten picked up by some uh, Somali pirates. Somali pirates. I mean, that, would, that would have been awesome to to, to podcast in from a uh, you know uh, an ocean liner uh, somewhere out in the Red right. Sea, waiting um, for the uh, <laughs> waiting for Navy SEALs to to like drop the the pilots by coordinating four shots simultaneously. That was yeah, that am- would be great. That would really screw up the sound quality of the podcast. <laughs> like, Ryan, are you, what, what, are you under sniper fire? Jesus, Ryan, come on, you know? Um, Although I would say if you, if you could give us your latitude and longitude from that location, that would be the first time a podcast had military intel value. Right, hey, exactly. Uh, hey, uh, Ryan, but how was, how was your trip to Kenya? It was good. It was brief. I was there for just over three weeks, um, and so it was, uh, you know, long enough to be jet lagged severely in both directions. Um, but it was great. Uh, it, it was good to catch up with uh, with old friends, um, and uh, you know, a little bit of work, a little bit of uh, a little bit of hanging out, a little bit of eating goat. Actually, a lot of eating goat. So it's not what bad. Is, what is goat like? What does it taste like? Um, it's like uh, if, if pork had sex with turkey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got it. And thanks for the visual as well. Moving on yeah. to uh, Jordan Stokes. Jordan, manual labor. 
I would have to say probably, you know, I was going to say the second season of The Wire, which I just started watching. Um, but I think that we're, we're not allowed to talk about that on this podcast, right? So no, instead, that's just Belinky. Uh, <laughs> that's just Belinky being a douche. Yeah. <laughs> um, and instead, I'm going to choose the Billy Joel album Stormfront, which is a brilliant album. Some people do concept albums with one concept. He had two. It was both about the Cold War being kind of a stormfront and about an actual stormfront threatening a fishing vessel. And since deep sea fishing <laughs> is a kind of manual labor, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Stormfront the album. A kind of manual labor. It's like people who do who do fishing who go out on those boats. Did you not see the perfect storm? They have that show now, right? The 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 manualist labor. That's what it's called, isn't it? That's another. Speaking of labored jokes, <laughs> clearly, oh. no, I clearly it's another America's next top manual laborer. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly, a fellow academic on the podcast. Uh, is that is that two Billy Joel shoutouts in one podcast? That's wow. That that's unprecedented. That's <laughs> two more than he usually gets. <laughs> yeah. We um wait who who was the other one? Allentown. Uh, oh right. Uh, uh, yeah, I I talked and said a thing. Yes. Rather. <laughs> Sorry, I'm worried about the sound quality. I don't actually listen to what you people say. <laughs> I am totally concerned about this. All right, here's mine. Uh, in the classic uh, piece of cinema, Eight Mile. <laughs> uh, Eminem works in like uh, some factory having to do with cars, and he operates a machine where the the functional part of the machine moves up and then moves down, and it is accompanied by shouts of up, down, up, down, and it's really like it's really meta labor. Um, because it's like it's reducing all of manual labor to just two simple commands up down and uh and it you know tickled my fancy for that i'm sorry who was talking about billy joel <laughs> doesn't he have sex against that machine later in the movie <laughs> with, yes. yeah with against with, the, the up down machine <laughs> with Brittany murphy <laughs> Yeah. Spaghetti, spaghetti, way, spaghetti, uh, spaghetti. <laughs> the uh, up down machine is going to be my new porn star name. <laughs> we should we should and make introducing a... the up down machine <laughs> as the, uh, Lance. Um, you know, hey, so we're commemorating Labor Day, and if I'm not getting sentimental about. I don't know. One thing, it's another. So, hey, shout out to all the people who do manual labor. I saw a TED Talk. Speaking of pretentious intellectualism, uh, I was on the TED website. Uh, You know, these super exclusive conferences where people uh, give ideas that change the world. Um, And the the guy who hosts the show Dirty Jobs was on there, and he talked about sort of America's pop culture war on working people, where labor is – where manual labor is, you know, described as the province of the very dim or, um, you know, as something to be denigrated. Uh, And, you know, so, hey, uh, Labor Day, we like labor – 
Um, I don't know. Can someone say something very sentimental about uh, manual labor and its importance? And the, well, I would, you know, the, I think the, I, I think I uh, well, when, dunk, when, <laughs> well, <laughs> when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the Lord said that they were going to have to make their livings by the sweat of their brow, he was describing the human condition as it stands today. And for us to, to not acknowledge that we live by the brow, the sweat on the brows of others is for us to deny where we have come from allegorically, metaphorically, literarily, and to set aside our own humanity and the things that make our very livelihoods possible. So for those of you who work and make us all live by the sweat of your brows, thank you. This is your day. Hope that you have a cheeseburger. Go ahead. Okay, um, a little human moment for you all that uh, Netflix apparently hires people to manually sort through the discs when you uh, send them back and process them, sort of file them in the correct uh, bin. So when I fire up my Netflix page and it tells me that I would probably enjoy Princess Tutu, that uh, that in order for me to watch that and navel gaze about it, somebody has to do manual labor, and it's not me. So, so thank you, sir, whoever you are. And also, you know who the hardest working people on the internet are? I mean, after us, of course. It's, it's the listeners, the listeners to this podcast who, who put in countless, thankless hours every week just to, just, to, just to hear us, you know, blather on about pop culture and getting at levels of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. You so know, we, let's, let's no, thank no, no, you. That's, that's a good sentiment, but I really disagree. I think it's Chinese gold farmers for World of Warcraft. But uh, <laughs> yeah. fine. So we salute fine. you, okay. our our fine listeners. We salute you this Labor Day and the labor that you go to to click on the download link and uh, and download the podcast. And we are always interested in hearing from you. So you know how you can get in touch with us. Email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com. Uh, use the contact form on the site. Leave a comment on the show notes. Or call 20 eat log zero one. That's 203-284-6401. Wait, did I get the number wrong now? Uh... It's 20, 20 eat log zero one. Twenty eat log zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. God, I hope I haven't been saying it wrong all this time. Two eight five six four zero one or twenty fat jog zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. And hey, some people called uh, the line, and this is what one of them had to say. Hey, this is Nick J from Orlando, and man, it's really unsafe for me to look at my GPS right now because I'm driving. But I am at north, 28 degrees, 22.445 west, 81 degrees, 30.874, elevation 104 feet. Anyway, so I saw G.I. Joe, the movie, and uh, just got to say one thing out of a billion things I could say. Actually, I'm going to say two. One, the CGI was crappy. Like, it looked like a... 2001 movie but also if they have invisibility cloaks why don't they all wear invisibility cloaks and why don't they wear invisibility cloaks all the time like the whole movie would have made everything they did a whole lot easier very strange 
All right. I want to take this up because invisibility, uh, invisibility cloaks fall into a certain category of, of narrative devices that are like story stoppers. And another, another one is time travel, that once you introduce invisibility or time travel into a story, really teasing out all the implications of what those technologies would mean really makes it impossible to tell a story. So in doing that, when you have certain things like this, and I don't know, maybe you can think of others, um, you have to either severely and rigorously limit the power of time travel or invisibility or mind reading or something like this, or uh, just say to hell with it, do what you're going to do and uh, ignore the implications. Well, there's a third possibility. Yeah, Jordan, there's a third possibility. A third possibility is to make your story entirely about the implications of this technology. Right? Like jettison everything else and just have it be like, what if invisibility was possible? Well, it's the hollow man. Right. Uh, Oh, the hollow man. I was thinking of like, you see, Back to the Future is a story that purports to be about what with the implications of time travel, but really the the implications of time travel in Back to the Future really cause more problems than the time travel itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the well, disappearing I, I hand. Would, I would just say that the uh, that you know Back to the Future is playing dirty pool. It's actually about uh, Oedipal desire, right? Whereas a movie, <laughs> a movie like uh, like Primer maybe actually is. Uh, about the implications of time travel and not about much else. You mean primer? Is it primer? No, no, no. Primer <laughs> is what you put on your walls. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be either, right? Like, I just wanted to be a jerk and say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, pri- primer or primer, sorry. Primer is also about the corrupting effects of power on friendships, Right. But I mean, that's just sort of any movie like. But I agree with you. I think it's on a scale, right? Like, you get to have one end movies that are totally about their subject matter, like A Brief History of Time, the movie, which is really good, by the way, and is actually exists. It actually exists, and I've watched it, and it's very good. Um, it's and, narrated and, by and, by Stephen Hawking's computer voice, right? Yeah, yeah and it's, it's not. Like he, he, it's not not actually about Oedipal desire. <laughs> like i had a hot mom and i used to watch her make cookies no it's not that at all Uh, (laughs) but no i mean obviously you have to have well not you have to i mean i I challenge people to break out of these molds but in movies that are very much about in a cerebral sense the implications of something that has ridiculous implications like time travel you're going to have sort of a storytelling human element uh, on one and then on stories that have are mostly about the human element but use the crazy technology as a framing device you know there's a long continuum there and you could almost i mean what could you call it would you call it like the back to the future primer continuum that's a little bit lengthy but basically like with time cop on one extreme right where like the actual time travel is more or less completely irrelevant to the story uh and like on the other extreme you have say like um species which is like a really serious take about the implications of alien biology uh <laughs> Never mind. I guess most of the movies I really like tend to be on the storytelling angle, and but no, that there are really good movies that are on the other the other side too. Like I'm trying to think of any off the top of my head. I mean, like things that are they're good tend to be a little more alienating. They tend to be a little bit more cerebral, right? Um, can anybody else think of any good movies that are about their difficult subject matter and have to exclude the human element to an extent? Uh, Jean Luc Godard's Pierrot Le Fou. 
<laughs> but that's not science fiction. No, no, no. That's, that's fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, like the core, right? That's <laughs> all about technology and science, except it's about incorrect well, technology and science. To, um, to give a, a slightly outside the box example, uh, sneakers, the early slash mid nineties action flick, was the first to take, or was one of the first I saw to take hacking and information theory seriously, not just hacking as some sort of magical techno babble that lets the protagonist get past a, a barrier that happens to take a different form in the 90s than it would have been the 70s, but rather hacking as means of controlling information, means of using social engineering to get past technical obstacles, etc. Uh, that was a very, it was a very literate take on hacking that even if the technology depicted in that movie was outdated almost, you know, two years later, is still a more sophisticated look at computer technology and information theory than any movie I've seen since. My voice mm. is my passport. Verify me. <laughs> yes, that's well, yeah, it, it ex- <laughs> uh, Like the book Red Mars would be an example of what I'm talking about, but it's a right, book. Yeah, yeah, a that's a, that is a yeah. hard – and I think you probably find it more in like hard sci-fi in novel form uh, than you would in cinematic form. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can we touch quickly on the other point that um, that was brought up in that voicemail, which is the CG effects? Now, I don't think any of us have actually seen GI Joe, um, but uh, it's interesting that he pointed out the year two thousand one as a year for crappy CG. But I just wanted to point out that Jurassic Park um, goes all the way back to nineteen ninety three. So I would argue that there's been plenty of good CG that was happening in two thousand and one. It's just that, um, you know, this just seems like a very long time ago. Hey, especially. Uh, you know, a lot of Jurassic Park was not CG. Like, that big T-Rex was a puppet. That's right. A lot of it was mechanical effects. But uh, the big brontosaurus at the beginning, as well as I think a lot of the velociraptor effects, were CG. Yeah, well, and I guess right, by... I mean, you've, got, you've got great CG earlier than that, right? Like, Tron, 1982. <laughs> But Tron's different, though. That was fun. <laughs> no, no, that was funny. I didn't. Tron was good CG, though. I mean, in the fact that it was, was accomplishing what it was trying to do, which was going to create, like, a fictional, created virtual world. Yeah, in fact, that's, that's one of the things, Jordan, that it's one of the things we talked about on, on earlier podcasts that, that I, I called out, that I was sort of displeased a little with the, the, the new Tron trailer because it it made what was a very static, you know, non-realistic effect, namely that the light trails of the of the light cycles in the video game, it gave it these sort of like blurry, wavy edges as if it was a genuine energy pattern as opposed to the flat, you know, static panel that it was before. And I dislike that because in the first one it was a very, you know, it was a very obviously synthetic effect. And in this one it looks like a computer pretending at realism, which is less satisfying to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Hey, uh, so someone sent someone posted a link into our back channel of um, uh, top grossing movies for 2001, and you know, let's just point out that a few of these are no slouches in the visual effects department, uh, like Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, and The Mummy Returns. You know, were both I think pretty good, uh, pretty good movies. All right. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Were, were movies with special effects that really were 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 good? Um, I my stock 
bad bad visual effects movie is uh Air Force 1 where the um <laughs> where the the uh the plane crash at the end looks like somebody's screensaver now or something like that or it looks like one of those you know I don't know cheap computer reenactments they do on the nightly news but uh moving right along we got a lot of calls a lot of voicemails uh, some of them longer than that one to get to so we are uh going on here is a uh a short question from an international listener. Hi, this is Sean calling from 44 degrees, 2 minutes and 35 seconds north, 79 degrees, 27 seconds, uh, or 27 minutes and 6 degrees, 6 seconds west. Gotta hate latitude, longitude. Uh, been listening to the podcast for the last little while, enjoying it, and was thinking about how you guys were trying to get. Uh, girl on the show, and that's a very good thing, and how you guys have been impressed by your international audience, which is also kind of a neat thing. Have you ever thought about getting a uh, non-American uh, to uh, be a speaker on your show? Because it'd be kind of interesting to hear some of this uh, from the opinion of someone who is still in the English world and, and receiving a lot of the American media as part of their pop culture, but who comes at it from a different perspective. Just a thought. So, thank all right. No way. No non-Americans on the show. <laughs> no non-Americans. This is a this is a, born in the USA. Uh, union made. This is uh, ah whatever. <laughs> oh man. To to yeah. to comment on the Pacific Express call. Uh, yes, it it would be nice if if we had an overseas listener because you know films. Films are premiered at different times and with different emphases in overseas markets than they are in the U.S., even if that's where they're created. So, uh, yes, if if you're an overseas listener and you uh, uh, and you're, I mean, part of the issue is we record at a particular time on Sunday that not everyone in the world would be awake for. But right, you know, if you are, well, get in touch. <laughs> it would kind of have to be uh, a Canadian, right? Or a Mexican. Or South or South America. Someone in someone in Yeah, but most of Europe, yeah, most of Europe is right out because they are uh, sound asleep. Hey, so in terms of us trying to get a woman onto the show, do you ever think that maybe having eat log be the way to be the phone number? What? I mean, not, not to point out the, uh, <laughs> the elephant in the corner of the room, but <laughs> with his with his massive log that you have to eat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not to point out the giant phallus in the corner of the room, but that's funny because I always like associate it with eating a log of poop rather than a, a, a wang. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> We want to hear you. (laughs) When you hear you log, do you think of eating poop? Do you think of eating wang? Sound off in the comments. (laughs) And we'll ascertain what log people are actually. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Specifically on this, on on the depth use of the word log, I looked it up on Urban Dictionary. (laughs) And the, the first two entries are about penises. The third is about uh, a large piece of timber, and the fourth is about poop. But by far and away, the number one 
uh, rate number one definition on it is uh, the male genitalia. 448 mm. positive reviews for that one. Well, <laughs> you know, more what? negative up there. You know what they say about genitalia? They'll never fail you. Why, why is there an Urban Dictionary definition of the word log that refers to it as a piece of wood? That's what I want to know. That's not an urban definition at all. Like, that's a totally rural definition of a piece of wood. That's, that's like a suburban at best. That is not, that is, somebody is spamming Urban Dictionary with stuff that it does not need, which is accurate definitions of the King's English. It's all about it's all about the co-creation effect of social media. You know, everyone's allowed to contribute, and that the the unwashed masses vote up or vote down what's effective. So the fact that the literal definition of log has the lowest votes indicates it's working. It's a sign of success, not a failure. No, the poop definition has the lowest The tree definition is in the middle, which is, I feel like, the one place I'm not comfortable with it being. I'm not right. comfortable with it being in the middle. It should either be above the penises or below the poop. That's what I'm saying right now. We should say, uh, we should say that, you know, Kennedy, if you check Wikipedia, the MTV VJ Kennedy may still be part of the Kennedy political dynasty, as we, uh, as we amended Wikipedia to read during the last episode. <laughs> Last week, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. like so long ago. Uh, <laughs> moving, moving right along. Speaking of uh, Wikipedia, this is a. Uh, this was an email. Uh, Reese from Savannah wrote in to say about podcast number fifty-eight. Uh, note the following Wikipedia page, which was uh, Wikipedia.org/org/slash/wiki/slash. Awesome things that need to happen but never will, which was a, a category on Wikipedia that we um, uh, that we had suggested, right? Or things that ought to happen, right? Isn't the, isn't that what we were talking about? Uh, and now I clicked on it tonight as we record this episode, and it is uh, it has been taken down, unfortunately. So if you Wikipedia search for awesome things that need to happen but never will. Uh, you won't find anything, but thanks for uh, to Reese Aww. from Savannah for sending that in. Um, Daniel from Brisbane writes in uh, and asks for a little bit of clarification. Daniel was on the uh, last uh, the last listener feedback episode, and he says, "Hey, one thing I've never managed to work out is whether or not you are being serious." And he's talking to me. Uh, whether or not you are being serious when you refer to Paradise Lost as the unsurpassed and unsurpassable pinnacle of literature in any language ever. Is this a reference to something? A scholarly in-joke? In all seriousness, would you recommend it to someone like me who's interested but easily distracted if the literature's too dry? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Pete, you want to help me here? Yes, I am not... I, I am not joking when I refer to Paradise Lost as the unsurpassed and unsurpassable pinnacle of literature in any language ever. Uh, no, I am not joking at all. Uh, it is kind of a literary in-joke because one of the things that Paradise Lost is about, in terms of being about the fall, is it's about being the unsurpassed and unsurpassable pinnacle of literature in any language ever like that's that's kind of part of Milton's brief when he sits down to write this thing which is like to write you know the greatest thing the greatest thing ever and so part of it can be can be in a meta sense uh can be thought of as being about um 
about uh, greatness, about literary greatness, and about greatness, and about divine greatness, and about the idea of greatness and what it does for us. I don't know. Uh, any of the any of the literary scholars want to chime in on the uh, on the topic? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think for me, for the me, the, uh, was it, what did he say specifically? The unsurpassed and unsurpassable work in any language ever. Is that what he called it? Yeah, well, that's what I have called it, and he was yeah, quoting me, called, yeah. But now, I don't, I don't speak any language ever, so I can't really, we can't really confirm or deny that part of it. But I would chalk, I would definitely put firmly, and maybe Stokes can back me up on this one, put firmly in that seat the 30-year-long uh, uh, graphic novel slash comic book slash rant of madness, Cerebus uh, the Aardvark, as the unsurpassed, unsurpassable work of literature. Now, I'm, I'm taking away anything that's all that really amused about this. I'm not saying it's good, but it is unsurpassable and unsurpassed. <laughs> uh, um, it's yeah. actually very good for like the first like 10 or 15 years, uh, and then he drops off of the deep end. Um, <laughs> if you guys are familiar with it at all, it's, it's, um, it's sold in a series of like, fa- like 500 to 1,000 page long black and white volumes nowadays, although it was literally published every week for like a you know, 30-year period, and it was made pretty much by one guy, although he had some guy in the later half of it who did his backgrounds for him. Um, this one guy who lived in Canada, uh, who, who was pretty much the, the pioneer of the independent comic book industry, um, and was sort of a, an auteur of this sort of thing, and uh, starts off writing a Conan the Barbarian parody with an aardvark that becomes a social commentary about politics, and then about religion, and then about gender, and then uh, he gets a divorce and becomes schizophrenic, and goes off the deep end, and it becomes very much about how awful women are, and becomes like almost unreadable he rants about his crazy cosmology. Um, and then it's for a while, it's about uh, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it wanders all over the map into all sorts of craziness um, before it returns to the subject of aging and death. Uh, so, I don't know. Jordan, how would you chalk that up? Do you think it's, it's in the same ballpark as something like Paradise Lost? Yeah, unsurpassed and unsurpassable. It's kind of like the mathematical concept of zero. Like, you, you need it out there to do useful things. But I'm not sure that it, it's like... <laughs> um, the other thing, I remember once reading uh, somebody, I think Harold Bloom, calling Finnegan's Wake the most intentional work of literature of all time. I kind of feel like like Service of the Aardvark is maybe the most intentional comic book. Like, <laughs> at, at no point, from the Conan parody all the way through to the anti-feminist tract, there's no point at which, like, his characters got away from him, and he was telling the story that, like, that uh, the, the story kind of took over. And he was just telling the story at every point. He's like saying, like, this is exactly what I want to do. At various points, there's a solid like fifth of it in the middle that's actually quite good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I mean, in, yeah, definitely. I think the whole volume about Woody Allen and Sung Yi is a little bit off the deep end. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if you read that one. But, um, but no, I'm sure he, it's all on purpose, definitely. But anyway, who else? Does anyone else have an unsurpassed and unsurpassable work in any language that they'd like to pimp on this podcast? Uh, I will say that if we're using unsurpassed and unsurpassable in a chronological sense, uh, apparently the longest-running comic strip is the Cats and Jammer Kids, which goes back to 1887. <laughs> so as of it is unsurpassed now i don't know if i would go so far and say it's unsurpassable um because prince valiant or the, or the phantom will probably keep going for you know forever at this point i, I don't know I'm, man gonna... ozymandias was king of kings look upon his works you might understand. Uh, all right perich has been trying to jump in since yeah, the I'm, very I'm beginning gonna, of this I'm conversation gonna go, i'm gonna go out on a limb this is this is kind of an obscure one so i I'll, i'm willing to back this up but uh the Iliad, 
I mean, yeah, I love the Iliad. Book 24 of the Iliad is one of the most beautiful and wonderful things in all of literature as far as I'm concerned. I, I love the, the Iliad. Movie. I like the part I where – I, I like I the when, when uh, Brad Pitt but, was standing yeah, out in front of the gates of Troy shouting, Hector! Hector! <laughs> that, was, that is unsurpassed and unsurpassable, I think. Sorry, Parrish, I cut you off again. No, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just disappointed they didn't recreate the point where, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, spends 45 minutes staring at his shield and, you know, describing in detail what each part of the shield uh, symbolizes. But, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, do, uh, even, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm I, I'm sorry, Matt. This is kind of a revelation to me because I always thought you were joking when you said "Paradise Lost," and that one kind of that one kind of overwrought poem by Milton was the unsurpassed and unsurpassable work of literature in any language. Like I, I thought, at least one of those three adjectives had to be put on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a fantastic. Look, I think it's a fantastic thing. Like it's you know, in terms of quality, and you know, I don't know, intentionality, like artistic control like i i think you'd be hard pressed to to beat it in all seriousness though um what is it cerberus the aardvark cerebus the aardvark cerebus cerebus the aardvark it's actually it 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 is tremendously innovative it's a really 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 cool yeah i mean Mm. like parts of it are invented whole way other panels like um if you are at all a sane person, you will not read. Um, but if you're if you're looking for madness and you're looking for unsurpassable literature in all direction, and so much literature is just a form of madness, then you plow through and you read the whole thing like I did, and then you actually throw it all away because having it in your house is intolerable. <laughs> having it stare at you makes it impossible for you to sleep. So, uh, yeah. having having so Cerebus, having Cerebus uh, looking at you. Uh, yeah, shot no, from- I, when I remember, yeah, I, I, when I read the last volume of Cerebus, um, I was actually moving and I saw it and I hadn't finished. It. I picked up, I read it. I didn't, I didn't sleep for like three days. So it was ridiculous. Anyway, I, um, I'll, I'll back off of that and see if, if, if anybody listening has an opinion on Cerebus, the aardvark, like leave it in the comments. Absolutely. I'd love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. God, I wish you'd lent them to me cause I'm totally, I'm totally interested. Uh, Stokes, what are you thinking? I'll just uh, answer the second part of his question. If you are a person who uh, doesn't like literature that's too dry, which is uh, that's what he asked, right? Yeah. Probably Paradise Lost is not going to be for you. Nope. However, this is a beautiful thing about poems that are this old. There, you absolutely should try it because it's free online. So, you know, go read, the, go read the first few paragraphs, and if you find it too dry, that doesn't mean you're an idiot. It just means that you find it too dry. And, uh, the, you know... There are other books out there. And it, is, that are worth reading. and it is, I mean, as an advocate uh, of Milton and of Paradise Lost, I'll say it is dry, for sure. I, 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 will say, I will say that's what's that's what's kept me from diving into it for so long. I, I, I've largely shared uh, Donald Sutherland's opinion of it as expressed in Animal House, which is that, you know, Milton is an incredible bore and his wife found him so as well. But my familiarity with him isn't great, so I'll, I'll take a look and I'll give it a try. And maybe next podcast I'll, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I I don't know that I could read the whole damn thing in a week, and I and I really love it. Like I I would probably need to take a book a day, and just uh, I said I'll talk about it next week. Okay. Oh, 
It's on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. Jesus. Um, okay. Uh, one more from Daniel from Brisbane. Uh, similarly, what exactly do you mean when you say that X is the Finnegan's Wake to wise Ulysses? Okay. So Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, two uh, novels by James Joyce. And uh, Ulysses, very complicated, very convoluted, sort of difficult to read, sometimes hard to get through in certain places. But uh, at bottom, uh, based a modern retell- based on uh, uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, and so based on a is sort of modern retelling of the Odyssey, and so at bottom has a very definite structure that is discernible and that you can find your place in. Uh, Finnegan's Wake, uh, Joyce's you know, soundbite about Finnegan's Wake was, it took me 11 years to write it, it should take you 11 years to read it. It is even to the the, the most hit person to all kinds of literary allusion, uh, almost entirely incomprehensible. Um, and, uh, you know, so, I don't know, I, Pete's probably read it, because he is a completist. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I read the first 15 pages, and it took me two... Uh-huh. Ever and, again, and you cut you cut out again, Pete. What it took you to what to read the first fifteen pages of Finnegan's Wake, um, and I put it down, and then I picked up Ulysses, and I was breezing through it. It's much easier. <laughs> and one more time, you um, cut up two what two months, weeks, days? How long did it take? Two days. Yes. Two days. He said. Days. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. No. My experience. Right. Yeah, my experience with uh, Finnegan's Wake is that at one point I memorized the sentence "River run past even Adams from Swerve of Shore to Bend of Bay brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Howth Castle and environs," so that I could give it to somebody as a quotation, as a charades clue. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you bastard! <laughs> that is was... that the same reason that you memorized uh, the mystery of chess boxing by uh, the Wu Tang Clan? <laughs> 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 no, I remember as that because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but then you did you did use it as a as a charade clue. I mean, among and you know the listeners should be aware uh, that among the uh, panelists on this podcast, uh, among many of them, there is a tradition of totally dickish charades, where the you know where the the idea is to. Uh, yeah, I think I gave you. Um, uh, oh, beautiful for pilgrim feet whose stern impassioned stress a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness as a no, song. No, that was me. That was me. I just want to be very clear. Oh, oh yeah, you, did, you ended up doing that one. And so that we have, we've instituted the don't be a dick rule in charades. The charades are a lot less fun now in, in some ways. Uh, all right, let's go back. Let's go back to, uh, to some voicemails and uh, to our fantastic listeners who call us at 20eatlog01. I guess we don't have any voicemails from women. Maybe they are put off by, uh, by dialing the number. Anyway, uh, back to the phones. Um, hi. I was just reading your website and listening to your podcast. And I gotta say, I don't get it. I mean, you guys really overthink this stuff. <laughs> okay. Everyone calm down. <laughs> we, have to, we have to listen. We have to listen to this. No, I mean, like, you hold pop culture to this level of scrutiny that really doesn't deserve. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, get out of your system. Going on. Just kidding, of course. Uh, this is Ken from Brooklyn, uh, currently swimming at latitude 37.0625, longitude negative 95.67068. I just listened to podcast 58. It was uh, one of the best in a while. I think you guys are at your top form when you're more free form. My favorite ever was the one where you didn't have anything planned and eventually started talking about what is art, what is not art. Um, that was my favorite ever. Anyway, um, I wanted to say uh, an interesting thing about uh, Pretty in Pink, the movie. Um, I just saw it for the first time ever at this event with the Raspberry Brothers, who are these guys who do this live Mystery Science Theater 3000 type thing, and they pointed out in their intro that the plot, which you know involves the poor kids and their nemesis, uh, their nemeses, who they call the Richies, perhaps in a reference to comics, uh, comic book character Richie Rich, um, but there's this sort of sharp social divide between the poor kids who, you know, dress in their funky uh, thrift store clothes and the rich kids who are like these preppies and they sort of like occupy different spaces in the school. And what they were saying, what, what, what one of them said was it would make a lot more sense, the story would make more sense if the poor kids like Ducky and Andy were black it would it make more sense as like a story of sort of you know racial boundaries and racial tension in in an you know in a in a in the supposedly integrated high schools we lived in in, in the eighties but that were sort of you know just socially segregated um, and you know I just was wondering uh, what your guys thoughts were, was on uh, what your thoughts were on that anyway love the podcast keep up the great work and. Uh, talk at you later probably thanks very much thanks for the kind words uh so does pretty in pink make more sense if you uh take the uh rich poor divide and make uh make it into a racial divide uh i i had a had a comment on this when we, when we first heard the voicemail uh one yes it certainly it certainly would make the, the divide a lot more prominent it would make a lot clearer <laughs> That being said, having having gone to as predominantly white a school as is possible in the U.S., I'm talking, of course, about a, a private all-boys high school, uh, there is still a, a very clear distinction between people with money and people without. It's perhaps not as, as vicious socially as it would be in a, you know, in a different environment, but you still you still have a very clear sense of who has money and who doesn't, and that can still very much be used against you if if people who are on top of the food chain are interested. So I don't think the movie was unrealistic for for having it be more or less uh, monocultural, uh, or rather, I guess, monoracial uh, between the rich and poor divide, but it, it might have been, or, sorry, definitely would have been clearer if it were along a racial divide as well. Well, I think that, like, John John Hughes movies, it was remarked a lot in the coverage uh, following his... Um uh, following his death, it was remarked that there are no black people in his movies, you know, and that like you know the Breakfast Club all white, Sixteen Candles, all the major people all white, and that um, you know so that uh, I think talking about this, you can look at it this on a number of levels. Maybe it's a way of talking about race without actually talking about race. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean maybe, it, it... maybe these. Yeah, Pete. 
Oh, I was saying, well, it was also 20 years ago. It's entirely possible that a lot of these places were more segregated than, than they are now. And that they've seen a movement of people out of the cities and into the suburbs that's changed the face of a lot of America's lily-white towns in, through the 80s and 90s and today. Well, all of the Chinese yeah. movies were set in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, correct? Um, yeah, pretty much. In an, unnamed, in an unnamed suburb, but that is a suburb of Chicago for sure. And I think, I mean, to my knowledge, uh, suburb, uh, Chicago is substantially uh, racially segregated, but there is more uh, heterogeneity with respect to income. I mean, I think there, uh, you know, there may be some kind of comment on on race in there, but I think uh, the cla- you know, what I know about the class dynamics of suburban Chicago, it you know, makes sense on its own without having to read a, a race dynamic into it. I don't know. There are poor white people as well. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there are more poor white people, in fact, than any other kind of poor people in America. They are poor. The majority of the poor are white, right? Right. Um, yeah, because they're. Are they, are they, I the mean, population. isn't that just? Isn't that incidental to the fact that the majority of the people are white? No, it's not. I don't think it's incidental to the discussion. Um, it might be. It might be something that you take for granted based on that previous presumption or that previous piece of point of fact. But I think it's very relevant to what well, we're talking about. No, yeah, about. I guess. I guess it's not. It doesn't follow. Uh, it doesn't follow from from anything I said. I guess that the that the ethnic makeup of the poor would be similar to the ethnic makeup of of the wealthy. In fact, like I guess you would expect it to be different. Yeah, I mean, it's also impossible. It could be entirely different. I mean, I think the, the remarkable thing is probably that white people are also among the richest, right? Because yeah. in a lot of places, you see like a ruling class that's a minority that's repressing like a large underclass. And those mm-hmm. are places that are, um, those are, those are remarkable places. And you see a lot of one ethnic group oppressing another ethnic group. And presumably, it's the ethnic group doing the oppressing is reaping a benefit, an aggregate benefit from this. And like a lot of white people are reaping aggregate, aggregate benefits from this, but we forget about the people who, who are are still on the you know closer to the bottom of the food chain. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, the important thing to remember when you're considering John Hughes movies is that under Marxism, all struggles are inherently economic and political. <laughs> so you know when you put the, the complexion of race onto it, that's just obscuring the true issue. You know that, that people who have who have uh, racial divides and are oppressed because of their race are actually being oppressed for economic and political reasons. So really, uh, it's a much more effective revolutionary treatise by uh, choosing to sort of reduce that out and leave only the economic structure or uh, as, the fundamental economic structure behind. Or as Bullworth <laughs> as Bullworth said, uh, black people have a lot more in common with white people than they have with rich people. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, there's really, yeah, because Marx, <laughs> Marx said that the world was only divided into two main classes, right? jocks and nerds, and they, they fight <laughs> each battle. <laughs> well, and, and, I mean, yeah, so the, you know, the, the early Soviet Union is a perfect example of what happens when you let the nerds or the intellectuals run a country. <laughs> I mean, look what happened there. Well, then all the jocks in the Soviet Union killed all the nerds, right? <laughs> and then the jocks took over, and it was a disaster. Right. So that's, <laughs> that's actually – that's one way you can read the, the transition from Lenin to Stalin, right? Where that – you know, it's a takeover of, of a jock leader for, from a nerd leader. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Definitely, definitely. And then like, thirty, uh, and yeah, then like, like Obama, Obama takes over from Bush, which is a nerd leader taking over from a jock leader, right? Right. Well, he um, wasn't a jock. Yeah. He, was a, he was a cheerleader, wasn't he? Well, he was. I mean, in high school. Yeah. Oh, I guess. I guess so. 
mean, like, was, I mean, Gensel wasn't really much of a jock. That's true. He was of the party of the jocks, but wasn't a jock himself. <laughs> sort of like how Hitler's Jewish. Um, so he's like part of the group, but sort of not. I don't know. What would Brezhnev be? Does anyone know who Brezhnev was? I have that name rattling around in my head. And I don't <laughs> oh, know Leonid about. Brezhnev was the premier of the Soviet Union, I think, a counterpart to Jimmy Carter, I believe. Or was, was he a jock or a nerd? Was he, would you call him a jock or a nerd? I think he was a jock. I think he invaded sure? Afghanistan. Very much a jock. <laughs> well, there you go. I was, I was going to say he was he was more of an intellectual, so he was a nerd. But you know, I, I take it back after Lee's comment. That that does make sense. Gorbachev Gorbachev was a nerd. Yeltsin was a, was a jock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right, big jock. Hounding it on the table is not really a nerdy thing to do. Uh, It's not really a cool thing to do either. (laughs) Reagan was a jock. Uh, Bush 41 was a nerd. Clinton was – what was Clinton? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. on. Bush Bush 41 was a nerd? I mean he – you know, he was director of the CIA. He was was a Navy pilot. Yeah, but did you ever hear the man talk? You know, he oh, oh, I guess he was a Navy pilot. Like, it's true. Yeah, okay. I'll give I'll, I'll was, give you Navy pilot, but he was sort of I don't know. He was sort well, of I mean, nerdish by that, the end. That's just, that's just how old people talk when they get old. You know, that that happens. <laughs> I'm a total jock. I'm I'm I am not going to back down on this. Okay, forty one total jock. Okay, I stand corrected. Reagan jock, Bush jock. Uh, I think Clinton. I think Clinton is an edge case, though, and I, I'm curious about where you would where you would put him. Well, I mean, on, I'd on say the he's one a hand, to... right. uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Clinton was a huge nerd who got popular and tried to become a poser. That's what he did. He was like a Rhodes Scholar and a water boy for the team and a fat kid. And then he got all president crap and he got all fancy and cool and wanted to sleep with all the girls. That's what Clinton is. Clinton is a nerd who gave up on – who like tried to turn his back on his other nerds, which is why he was a self-hating nerd. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had internalized nerdophobia. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, in, in, the, in the name of getting more diversity on the podcast, rather than get a woman, rather than get someone from outside of America, can we get a jock on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who's a full role is just like when we go too far, they just shout, no! <laughs> to the microphone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be like every five minutes, though, let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, we would never be able to do anything. We would be getting wedgies all the time and swirlies. It would be awful. I liked, I liked awful. how we were how we were laughing at the at the intro to that call. That was, that was well played, sir. By the way, would, you know, uh, why do you guys have to overthink things so much? <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, Gotta you say, you had us fooled. Well done. Yep. Uh, moving on. Next call, caller. Tell us your lot long. Hello, this is Martin calling. Um, normally, I live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, that's in Canada. It's a bit far north of, uh, of where you guys mostly are. But at the moment, I am calling you from Ellesmere Island in the extreme high Arctic. I'm much closer to the North Pole than you are. I'm uh, early podcast. I remember there was discussion of latitudes and longitudes. I'm at about 79 degrees north. Um, so, yes, I am calling you from uh, Santa Claus's neighborhood. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I've been enjoying the podcast. Uh, 
I, I really like the website, and uh, I've been working my way through the podcast while I've been doing my uh, field work up here in the Arctic, and I'm up to, uh, I just finished episode 35, so I have a question I'd like to ask of the overthinkers. Um, maybe it's already been covered in one of the later podcasts, uh, but if not, I'd love to hear your overthoughts on it, and, and that is the role uh, or the perception of scientists in popular media. Uh, so I'm specifically thinking of uh, movies or TV shows in which a scientist is a good guy, isn't it, is a protagonist, uh, versus movies where the scientist is portrayed as the antagonist, is one of the bad guys. Um, it seems to me, just, just looking at my memory of the movies that I have seen, that scientists are most of the time portrayed as guys and that science is uh, a dangerous practice that unleashes uh, things man was not meant to know upon the world and, and leads to dangers that the heroes have to come and shut down the bad guy scientists. So I was wondering if the... And he gets cut off. <laughs> but I think we get the point. Uh, but that, that call died. So, um... <laughs> yes. Uh, so, scientists in popular, in popular culture, like, what, you know, what do you think? Uh, I'll, I'll take the first stab at this. I think science in popular culture is largely depicted as a form of, uh, what is it, not... It's of the two types of prehistoric magic that Joseph Campbell talks about. Sympathetic magic is the one, and it's not that, but it's the other that I'm thinking of, and I can't think of the name of it. Uh, if someone can Google it and correct me. But a type of magic, in other words, where if you use certain rituals and you dress a certain way and you manipulate certain magical items in a particular pattern, you produce a result. And no one really understands the result, except these people in the priestly cast who have special knowledge handed down to them. There's very little there's very little focus in pop culture on the scientific method as such. On people, you know, using forming hypotheses, examining empirical evidence, and using reason to discard outdated hypotheses and form a correct theory. Which I think is the coolest part of science because it's advancing the human condition. Uh, but you you get very little of that uh, I mean the X Files to an extent had it. Uh, you see some of that in, I guess, CSI would be one example of a positive or at least non-threatening portrayal of science. But the rest of it, you know, to agree with the caller, I wouldn't say is necessarily villainous, but is largely is largely <laughs> mystical. It's a uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, just from a storytelling perspective. Uh, in a story, the world gets thrown out of whack and then gets put back together again. And so you need you. Can, so science can fill either of those roles, right? Science can be the thing that throws the story out of whack, uh, or the thing that puts puts uh, puts it together again. Um, you know, so you can you can make this argument without really making a lot of reference to uh, these works telling our feelings about science but i think that there's a I, I think that there's a deeper level where you know science mostly tearing the world apart not putting it back together again and like what the power of love or something putting it back together again of simpler times um uh you know seems to point to our deep misgivings about technological progress mm -hmm. yeah 
Whereas at the same time, uh, movies about situations where Mother Nature runs rampant or like unexpected extraterrestrial activity makes all sorts of crap go crazy, and the scientist is the person who figures out what needs to happen, and that person, along with the jock, uh, fixes everything. Speaks to our you know enthusiasm for shaping our environment and our antagonism for Mother Nature. Right, I would I would say so. Like, uh, I feel like they come together in uh, in like the movie Chain Reaction uh, with Keanu Reeves and uh, and uh, Morgan Freeman, where they invent a bomb out of water that's capable of great destruction. Where I believe Keanu Reeves is a scientist who is both part and parcel of the creation of this weapon and like part and parcel of attempting to stop it. And he both like works in a lab and rides a motorcycle. And uh, and Morgan Freeman has a cigar he has in his mouth the whole movie and he never lights it. So like the contradictions in this movie between whether science is good or evil like come out in all sorts of crazy ways um and, and there's definitely dichotomies at work that are logically incompatible and create a mad mad world of bad cgi i might add <laughs> for, for, for the record just just so the sorry jumping just so the podcast audience doesn't think i'm completely illiterate i wasn't thinking of joseph campbell i was thinking of james george frazier's uh the golden bow uh mm-hmm. but i still don't know which type of magic i meant so uh i'm still pretty uh, ignorant so sorry carry on yeah. i think you have to look pretty far to find a honestly heroic science scientist in popular culture you'll find them as sympathetic characters when they know their place which means like doing what the military leader or jock or will smith tells them to do um there's a real old science fiction movie called, I think, The Shape of Things to Come. It comes out of Britain and it's based on an H.G. Wells short story. And it is really, yeah. like, ardently uh, behind science and, I mean, the opposite of technophobic, technophilic. And it ends yes. with this sort of triumphant speech of, and now we will make a new world order where scientists will rule and, you know, the, the plebeian masses will be enlightened by our scientific knowledge. And this big orchestra swells underneath them and they stare off into the glorious sunset of their new destiny. And just how bizarre that is to us, I think, goes a long way to, uh, to proving how uh, sort of trivialized or demonized scientists are in the culture, pop culture that we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. So what about the dynamic, like the, like the uh, dynamic shared between Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith, or between James Spader and Kurt Russell in Stargate, where you have, like, and uh, James Spader is a scientist, I mean, if you, well, do you count archaeology as a science? I mean, I think so, right? Um, mm. Not really? Social science. Not really. It's, it's it's a different thing, you know. I mean, he has he has special knowledge, but he's uh, he's not pushing forward uh, society in the same way that a scientist does. Right, 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 right. So there's, but I feel like there's all, yeah, yeah. There's often a dynamic where there's like the scientist is a good guy, but doesn't have the guts to get it done, and then you have somebody else who comes in and provides the guts to get it done. Right. Um, that's like Will Smith. Kirk. Yeah, that's Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum, right? Or that's Kirk right, and Spock. Right. Or that's Mulder, yeah. and Mulder and Scully in a way. Those Scully's about like needing faith, like getting getting over the scientific worldview. Yeah. I mean, of course, we can look at things like Armageddon and uh, the core, um, where there are scientists who are heroic, but it becomes incidental that they're scientists. Um, you know, although, like, and for the most part, also, the sci- the, you know, these sort of geological knowledge of the heroes in Armageddon. I guess in Armageddon, they're not scientists. For the most part, they're drillers, right? They're manual laborers. Right. It's who get the scientists. Yeah, the, the, the NASA yeah. scientists and things like this get, get yeah. um, come in for some ridicule, and, you know, as, as, yeah, egg, that's right, as that's eggheads. Right. It's really about the. Jer- the the nerds and the jocks in that movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's another case of this that's sort of a special case where it's like the scientist that pays 
a, a terrible price for all the you know for all the knowledge that man was not meant to have and i'm thinking here of like a beautiful mind and movies of that ilk where uh you know but um or actually in in a more contemporary instance of house Right where it's like his skill at medical diagnosis and scientific method and deduction and all this uh, seems to come hand in hand with his drug abuse and his uh, you know antisocial tendencies. Mm-hmm. You know what you don't see of much of anymore as you, as you used to I think is movies where like a tinkerer or like an inventor or somebody like makes a robot suit or a supercar or something and, and, and comes out after having made this thing and like shows it to the whole world and like fights evil with it. I feel like there was an era where that sort of thing was kind of big and uh, and it's not around anymore. You don't see it as much, right? Well, um, where, if if we're not counting The Dark Knight or Iron Man or either of those. Oh, right. Well, I guess Iron Man Iron Man is the great example of the heroic scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example, definitely. I'd forgotten about that one. Wait, Although, P- wait, wait. Oh, I thought you were being facetious. Oh, no, I mean, I, I honestly, you have watched <laughs> well, I was a lot like, of I was like, okay, Pete's making a joke about Iron Man now. <laughs> no, no, no. I honestly, like, well, think about it, because in the modern era, I feel like you've seen Iron Man and the, and Bruce Wayne, like, recast toward being sort of corporate leaders um, in a lot of the way that their, their sort of secret identity work the identity works. Um, whereas when the characters were, you know, not conceived, but when they were developed in the ways that many of us understand them to be technological characters, um, it was much more fashionable for people to be scientists. Here's the thing. Um, like, Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark are really shitty corporate leaders because they, they seem totally indifferent to the operations of their corporation and are, you know, chasing their private demons all the time. I mean, isn't that what it takes to be a corporate leader? (laughs) (laughs) Zap. Anyway. Uh (laughs) I really want someone to do a story arc uh, in Batman where he gets blamed for the housing market meltdown, but it was like he he made the mortgage market collapse in order to stop the Joker. And now he's he's being indicted. (laughs) I I think think actually I... uh, you know, I, I don't know if it was Bruce Wayne specifically, but the but the very good website uh, echocomics.blogspot.com, which we which we shared guest posts with a couple months ago, uh, had a series of posts recently talking about, I believe, somewhere in the the DC Comics universe where the current you know recession slash housing bubble is affecting the the economy there as well. I forget whether it's either Wayne Industries or LexCorp that is. That is being hit the hardest by it, but I know there's there's some impact. If I can find a link, I'll I'll put, post it in the podcast body. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense because those companies are heavily involved in aerospace and defense, for which there's a great deal of secular demand. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. They could, maybe LexCorp did real estate deals or something, or held those kinds of securities. Maybe it was Wayne Financial that got them into. So, yeah, the banking well, arm of Batman. We should uh, <laughs> we should push through into our last uh, last email of the uh, of the show, uh, which is from Gab, uh, frequent commenter Gab, uh, who is in. Oh, she doesn't give a location here. I think she's in either Oregon or Las Vegas. She's in Vegas now, right? She's uh, from like Washington State or something, and I think she's in Vegas. Uh, or- 
Whatever, same like, difference. They're practically the same states. Yeah, people. that's what I was. That's what I was about to say. All those um, Western states look alike. <laughs> hey, don't hate on us Western states now. Now, now, I feel like you know. I don't know. Yeah, uh, how's New Mexico, Matt? Um, <laughs> it's. <laughs> I mean, are you making a joke about? Uh, Caucasians no longer being <laughs> the majority ethnic group. No. Like uh, we were talking, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about society becoming gradually less segregated. And you know, in uh, in California, Caucasians are not a majority ethnic group. There mm-hmm. is no majority ethnic group in in uh, California. I wonder how long it's going to take nationwide um, for for that uh, for that trend to continue. I don't, I don't know, but well, I'm counting down the days. Token minority well, keep, here. Token minority here. Keep in mind that white people tend to expand to fill the spa- space allotted. Like, the definition of white people <laughs> tends to grow whenever it's necessary oh. to make a new majority colder. I thought you meant, like, <laughs> sure, obesity. Not, like, by, if you're counting by number, white people aren't the majority. <laughs> but by pound? Pound, pound. <laughs> the fattest ethnicity out there. No, no. No, um, I don't. But just I, like- I actually, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that, you know, American obesity is most pronounced among white people. It's, not, it's disproportionately represented in other ethnicities um, right. for a variety of reasons. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but I think, I think that, I mean, you know, Irish and Italian people didn't used to be considered part of, like, white people, right? Jews didn't used to be considered white people. And I think that the next big revolution is what happens to Hispanics. Do you get white Hispanics? Do you get not white Hispanics? Like, how do they end up getting defined for the long term? Because what, is the, what does the majority coalition in California look like if you start defining fair-skinned Hispanic people as white people? Yeah. Right? Oh, I, like, you know, there's, a, there's like a race survey, an ethnic survey on my uh, uh, when you sign up for car insurance, and it's voluntary. Yeah. But you know, I took it. I'm a I'm a white guy, you know. So there you go. But um, you don't get to uh, you don't get to it. It like explicitly specifies that you do not get to check Latino if you are Portuguese or Brazilian. Ah, right. Well, that's kind and of s- yeah. Well, it, right. And so, like, yes, these hairs are these hairs are being split as to who counts. Uh, who counts as white? Who counts as uh, uh, as Hispanic? Who counts as all all kinds of things? Uh, let's, but, like, let's not forget that white people are imaginary. Like we are, there's not actually an, an ethnic white people group. Like we are like a bizarre coalition of like a hundred different ethnic groups with very different histories and backgrounds. Right, and um, the just, Polish yeah. on on this podcast, the Polish are disproportionately represented, uh, as we discovered <laughs> as we discovered in our episode uh, Pitroni. Wumki, uh, several several weeks ago, but we've forgotten about poor Gab, who is languishing either in Oregon or Washington or uh, Las Vegas, and uh, she says. Um, just finished the most recent podcast, and it compelled me to ask about something I hear a lot from your crew. Meta. It seems you come. Uh, uh, it seems to come up in myriad contexts. But uh, by the way, uh, oh sorry, I've got a interject a linguistic note i always like gab i always use myriad uh as an adjective uh rather than like in a myriad of contexts which just sounds like terrible english to me so hey good on you gab for for you know towing the towing the usage line there um but i see it i don't know other places and i guess it is a greek word for like ten thousand ten thousand or something like that uh it seems to come up in myriad contexts and take on different meanings for each of you depending on what is being discussed 
Well, yeah, but you know, come on, Gab. We pick our we yeah we sort of define the terms of our argument so that we'll win in all cases. As such, uh, I hey, won't hey, ask. Hey, Matthew, you know who else did that? Hitler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's getting it. He's up to speed. You jump right in the saddle. And you're, you're, you're up to speed already. It's great. <laughs> Gab continues. As such, I won't ask. But are seriously, seriously, you're saying I'm like Hitler? Seriously. <laughs> As such, I won't ask for a concrete, definitive. I am far more Aryan than Hitler ever was. I am a. <laughs> Do you I want, am, have you ever seen Matt Rather go out in the sun? <laughs> he, he burns. He burns up like something entering orbit. Like, right. it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's I am a. I am a honky. I am a honky cracker. Anyway. Um, sorry. Uh, so as such, says Gab, knowing that we're you know, all really terrible, uh, you know, at not being fair with defining our terms. I won't ask for a concrete definitive explanation of meta, but I'd be interested to hear opinions on when uh, you each think it's okay versus when it's not some good successful examples contrasted with some bad examples. Uh, Is it possible for something presented as meta to go too far or not far enough? Uh, Do you think you ever... Go meta, so to speak, um, and this this is what Gab wants to know. And I thought it was a great it was a great way. I'll, I'll start the conversation by saying that meta is the Greek word for beyond. It's a Greek prefix, and it means beyond. So you know, meta meta discussion or is beyond discussion or meta literature, metaphysics, beyond literature, beyond physics. Uh, other than that, I will throw it open to the panel. I've always thought that meta as an adjective had a specific meaning other than just beyond. Like I first encountered it in in the context of the term metafiction, which someone was using to talk about Don Quixote. And using meta as an adjective to mean a a work of art, or I guess a work in general, that acknowledges its status as such. So in other words, a novel that you know, most novels that we pick up and read you know, even though they're even though they're in book form in our hands, pretend to be you know an accurate depiction of some events that happened once upon a time, and you know here they are. The fact that it's in a paperback doesn't mean it's doesn't isn't supposed to tell you it's fiction. Whereas whereas Don Quixote, uh, for instance, specifically makes reference to oh you know this is a translation of some other works, and oh I lost some pages here, so I don't know how his fight turns out, but I had to go find some other pages, and here's how it is. Uh, another example, uh, to, a slightly more accessible example, something that's meta would be uh, Elton John's "Your Song," uh, where you know the courses, and you can tell everybody that this is your song. It may seem quite simple now that it's done, etc. Where you know the song is saying, "This is what the song that I'm singing right now is about," which is which is very meta. So that's what I've always taken meta as an adjective to me. Yeah. And you can you can step back from that to places where it's a little bit less overt, like a little bit less obvious, like Inglorious Bastards, if you saw that movie. Um, it's about a group of soldiers in Europe, but it's really about a movie, a movie theater that is in Europe that all these soldiers are, are and ever these all these people, these personalities have to do with and converge on. So because it's about a movie and about a movie theater and it is a movie, you're thinking, well, it's not saying you're watching this movie right now and this is what I think about the movie that you're watching, but it's kind of hinting at it, and it's suggesting it, and that suggestion is meta. It talks about movies, so it's kind of talking about itself, and its status is a 
movie and about other movies that are like it, and not just about World War II. So, so you can step away from, from John's definition or clarification of what was very dead on and get to places where it's a little bit more nebulous what the meta role is and where it's a little less clear what exactly is going on. I want to on. distinguish between uh, self-referentiality and something like meta-narrative, right? Where, mm-hmm. where self-referentiality, where the work refers to itself or, or sort of acknowledges its constructedness or acknowledges its narrativity and, uh, and sort of meta-narrative where there's, there seems to be a larger point being made about literature or about cinema or about, um, you know, whatever, whatever the medium uh, whatever the medium is, so like I, for me, I would use the word meta to describe something that that I mean uh, meta, and I would never say meta as in that's very meta. Well, I, I mean, I guess I would. That is, it has that that sort of modernist tendency to self-referentiality, um, but that I, I would I would specifically target it at something that that comments not just on itself or even just on its own constructedness, but on. Uh, a larger issue uh, affecting the medium of representation. True. Right, so well, they, yeah. Most uh, of the sorry. time. No, no, please you go. Well, sorry, just real quick. I would I would agree with you on that. Rather that that self referentiality is a necessary but not sufficient component of being mad. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a callback to the last part. Um, forget it. Sorry, Stokes, go ahead. Stokes, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that most times when you get something that is self-referential to its own construction and its own plot and things like that, it's usually only using that as a skipping stone to getting to larger issues of um, of the genre or of filmmaking in general or literature in general. I can't think of a single uh, piece of anything that is uh, sort of small and meta where it talks about its own construction that isn't also talking about kind of the larger project of representation. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Or like, like well, how about in like a Missy Elliott song when Missy Elliott is like, Missy Elliott, Lil' Kim... Christina, uh, and like, like, how about when a rapper name checks himself on his own song? Do you think that that's small scale enough to like try to fit into that niche, or do you think it's still making a larger commentary on like the production of songs being done by artists? Well, I think that there's, I mean, there's definitely in hip hop, there's you know a great deal of attention to to the presentation. To there's a great deal of attention to identity as performance, yeah. right? And mm. this this like um, you know. And this, you see this in kind of the tension over authenticity within mm-hmm. hip hop. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, I think there there certainly is a continu- continuum of sort of uh, mm-hmm. meta commentary about hip hop within songs. Mm. So uh, addressing a, a side, unless somebody else has something a big picture to say about, uh, um, I wanted to jump to our other question about whether you can go too far or like what's the right use for it, or we can well, pass out some examples. Before, before we leave Miss Elliot completely, let me just say that I don't <laughs> think that uh, that when she says that 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 is in fact representation or signification. I think that uh, <laughs> at moments like that, the the project of of creating the song, uh, sort of the the signifier and the ding on seek collapse 
because there's no difference between her saying Missy Elliott and just the sound of her voice. I mean, clearly it's Missy Elliott on the trap on the track. And uh, you know, th- this is uh, this is what people like Schopenhauer get so excited about music because it's the one place where you can escape from representation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Missy Elliott is one of the few modern artists who really follows up on that. <laughs> this this um the Jordan. Jordan has has hit on why my favorite phrase is my favorite phrase. My favorite phrase is I'm just saying. <laughs> right? And that that is my favorite phrase because it is always exactly true. You know? And and uh yeah, despite what what whoever is saying it is trying to imply, just if you bracket that itself, right? Um it is always exactly true. It means precisely itself, and therefore it means precisely nothing. And so, it is uh, what it is. <laughs> it is. That's a tautology. They're all tautologies. Uh. It, is, it is what it is. Someone um, – uh. Oh, someone Twittered the other day a Twitter that I read, which was Tautology is the new Tautology, which I thought was, <laughs> was a pretty funny uh. Twitter. Hey, Pete, can you go yeah. too far? Uh, so, so this is my feeling about going too far, which I've I've put in a couple comment threads uh, by now, but I wanted to put it out there in Podcast Town, which is that y- the the problem of going too far is only really a problem if you don't allow for space in le- in like legitimate creative endeavor for hilariousness. Uh, like if you allow for things to be like funny and still part of what you're talking about, then you can go as far as you want. Um, and, and it really only, you only go too far if you go to the point of absurdity and funniness and it's not funny anymore and you're failing with your audience. Like if you did like, you know, we'd like meta the movie trailer that we always used to talk about and that somebody who actually made meta the movie trailer. Um, was that like Shane's generation of people or Yeah, it was like Shane's um, generation of people. Meta like yeah, in, a ta- like- in a time of gradually rising tensions in a place where something is about to happen. Only one man can be the protagonist. Or so, you know, <laughs> right, something right. like that. You know. <laughs> and then he appears if on, that went on- <laughs> He appears on screen like with a card that says weapon and says, I accompany my actions with a clever tagline. <laughs> <laughs> See, the only way that that can go too far is to be, like, two hours long to the point where, like, it's made its point and, like, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> no, no, I mean, right. if, it's, if it's funny, it can go for two hours. The way it can go too far is by not being funny. Right. But then if you, if you insist – and not if you insist. I don't want to be so pissy about it. But if you're trying to make a point without being funny, the universe of things that you can talk about without going too far becomes much smaller, right? Because you can't blast out the absurd um, uh, register as easily. Like you can still do things that are avant-garde and edgy and, and, on, the, and on, the, on the boundaries of acceptability and all that. Like you can do your like you know, thousand-year-old John Cage piece of music and that stuff. Um, but I feel like if you don't like things to be funny, you have a lot less freedom to do that sort of thing. I don't know. I think that's Personally, I would, say that the, I would say that the thousand-year-long John Cage piece is honestly pretty hilarious. <laughs> yeah, like, what's not funny about that? This is, for people who aren't aware of this, there's, a, there's an organ in Germany currently playing a piece by John Cage that is scheduled to end in the year, like, 3000 or something like that. And they, don't, they haven't currently built all of the, the pipes and keys of this organ. They're counting on the idea that the funding will get there before the A-sharp needs to be played in, like, 2522 for them to build the A-sharp key. <laughs> Isn't it called like as slowly as possible? Or that's like the direction that's on the top of the piece. Yeah. 
And they just put a brick down on like a note and they hold it there for like six months to a year or something or however long or three years. And then they're like, yeah. we'll move the brick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Funny. Exactly. Yeah, what if, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what if afterwards someone like claps and shouts encore? <laughs> then they play it again, for Christ's sake. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the difference between 1,000 years and 2,000 years? If you can do it once, you can do it twice. So that that's actually reminds me of when I was in track in middle school, and I, and I had to run the mile, and then after the mile, and in a meet, I had to run the 400. And my coach said to me, Pete, you can do anything for one lap. Anybody can do anything for one lap. <laughs> so like, you've done one, one lap of that song, you can do anything for one lap. Even play a 1,000-year-long organ piece. So. Right, and and if you are a dancer in a uh, you know in a CD strip club, you remember that you can do anything for one lap. <laughs> What's a good meta example? What's your favorite meta stuff, guys? Title of show, the meta musical, easily hands down. Like a musical about a musical, I think, is also about a musical as well. <laughs> Have you seen it? Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've listened to the soundtrack many a time. Highly recommend it. Um, it was like a sort of it was like a scrappy show. Uh, you know, show that could, and that was even. Is that an example of meta as well? The show was about the scrappy show that was about a show that was gonna, you know, start off off and make it to Broadway, and that's what the show, <laughs> in fact, actually did. Yeah, is that a good example of meta? Yes, yeah, I would say so. There was also a uh, song that was like going around the internet. I think when we around the time when we were in college, called "Title of the Song," that was a like. Uh, a meta boy band song. I think it was originally by a like I think it was like an acapella group called Da Vinci's Notebook. Um, but you know, it starts with you know the line like "Declaration of my feelings for you," elaboration on those feelings, description of how these feelings have existed, belief that no one else can have feel the same as I. It kind of goes on uh, in in a, in, a, in, a, in a deconstruction of the boy band song. So that's one of my favorite meta jokes. You know what's a really good example of meta is the video game Portal. If you've ever played the video game Portal, um, where like you're you're challenged to go through a series of uh, negotiate a series of puzzles by like crazy computer intelligence that is like testing you for like not necessarily a very discernible reason, and is a great commentary on like what it is to strap yourself into a video game for hours at a time, um, and sort of the weird craziness and whimsy that's associated with with like putting yourself through these own nonsensical tests. Um, I, I like that. I like that a lot. And it's got a great sense of humor and a great sense of self-deprecation about it. How explicit, Pete? I mean, do you think that that's in, – in that case, I think it's pretty explicit, especially with the, the computer voice kind of taunting you the whole time. But, like, yeah. there are lots of things where, like, the adventure of the protagonist could be an analog for the adventure of the reader uh, making it – you know, making it through the work. And how I mean, right. how explicit do you have to to be with something like that? Um, well, in order for to qualify for like yeah, the as, as meta <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to a kind of unmotivated allegory in our reading of it. Well, I, I think that mo- that. Um well, I think there was a, uh, one quote of mine that I gave a long time ago while I was talking about English papers and being an English major is, you know, when you read poems, there's a temptation to always say that the poem is about poetry, right? And so, like, I think I said once that all, just like all poems are about poetry, all papers are really about staying up all night. <laughs> that, like, you can, discern, you can discern from any paper that was written during an all-nighter, like, the spirit of, like, staying up all night and the all-nighterness of it. 
and like for craziest mixed and it's always there. Um, so I would, say, I, I would say very, very little. I would say you can, you can safely read a meta reading into almost anything. Um, a, because the meta police aren't going to come knocking at your door and taking you away. Nobody's going to stop you. And, and B, because that's sort of how form works, right? Like, it's, it's very difficult to make the strings disappear entirely. Um, it's impossible, in fact, to make the strings totally disappear. Um, I mean, you can talk about, I, I don't know, I tend to use words other than deliberately meta to uh, talk about works that, um, that, that like, are, are either so meta that it must have been on purpose or, like, meta to a degree that it might very well have been by accident. You know what I mean? Like, like for instance, Heathcliff and Riff Raff. If you think about Heathcliff and Riff Raff, the two cartoon cats, um, uh, I mean, I feel like there's a sort of commentary on cartoon cathood that is being made by these, like, divisions of these two cats, and one of them lives in a very nice neighborhood, and one of them lives in a really bad neighborhood. Um, but they're basically the same character, and it's sort of like, you know, almost like it's sort of, we can put them wherever we want. Like, the setting is a construction. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the same story. It's interchangeable. Um, they, they don't even have to have different shows, right? It was 15 minutes of an episode, 15 minutes of an episode, right? Like, I feel like that's meta, but I don't necessarily think it's on purpose. Um, and I wouldn't, but I wouldn't use the word meta to, I wouldn't only use the word meta to talk about the ones that I think are on purpose. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand. Okay. Yeah. That there's, uh, that it can stumble into meta-ness. So some, speaking you know, of, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. some, some works are born, <laughs> some works are born meta, some achieve meta-ness and some have meta-ness thrust upon them. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jordan, you were about to do some segue. <laughs> Everyone who's listening to this podcast, you've just had Metanus thrust upon you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Metanus is my name for my... Never mind. Jordan, what were you about to say? Look, uh, what I was, what was going to say is, and as you all know, we've just recorded two podcasts in a row, and I've been sitting here waiting no, for... No, I don't know, I don't know if everybody knows this, that like, as, uh, as we did... Uh, this is the Labor Day podcast, but we're on vacation right now, so we did, we did this show last week. Yeah. So I've been sitting here for the last like two and a half hours, whatever, waiting for the moment to segue seamlessly into this into this uh, this fact, which Pete just provided. Speaking of cartoon cats, I've just uh, started fostering a cat Um, and it's a really beautiful animal. I I very much enjoy having it, but I need to find it a a permanent home because it's kind of sad that it'll just like, you know, not have a have a home until that happens. And there's a blog that I've started, um, you know, for this purpose, or actually my wife has started. I'm not really involved with it, which is uh, brooklynkitty.blogspot.com. And, uh, you know, go on over there. You'll see some pictures of a cat. Uh, I'll also give you a fair warning that whenever from now on I don't really have anything queued up for overthinking it from the week, it will just be a picture of the cat doing something cute. Which <laughs> will oh, no. probably get us more hits than we've ever had on the site. So. Please, no. Please, no. We're not becoming a, a kitty blog. Well, uh, what do you think? What are your favorite meta moments? What do you think of uh, the things that we've talked about, about uh, you know the destruction of narrative by time travel or invisibility? Uh, what do you think of Paradise Lost? What do you think of John Hughes? and race. Uh, should we get an international panelist? Are you that international panelist? You know what you should do? You should uh, write us. You should leave a comment on the show notes. You should use the contact form on the site. You should email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the uh, gender neutral number 20 eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. And as always, 
it is uh, it is necessary and sufficient that you visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. It's totally about poop. How about wangs? <laughs> So telling people to eat our shit is, is less offensive to the potential female audience. <laughs>